Hey everyone, um, I've decided to take Thanksgiving off this year, but it's the first time ever that I get to make the whole meal. Usually my mom, who's an amazing cook, makes the meal, or my husband, who went to culinary school, makes most of the meal, and I just add like a little bit here and there. And so it's my first time making the whole thing by myself. My brother's visiting from college, and I'm super excited, so I'm going to go ahead and take a break from the show this week in order to focus on Thanksgiving, and I'm super, super excited about it. But I will leave you with a rewind episode in order to, you know, just give you something to listen to this week if, you know, if you get lonely without me. Um, but what I'm going to do then is next week leap right into our regular Christmas rotation with some a story every Friday for uh, the Christmas season and a Christmas wrap-up episode, of course, on Christmas Day. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I hope you have a wonderful Thanksgiving Day. You all stay safe in your travels, and uh, just enjoy your families and some delicious food. Thanks for tuning in. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Southern Pride Storytime. I am so excited to talk to you today about a story I've been building up to for a while now, so I'm pretty excited about it. We're doing Beauty and the Beast. So you got it, guys. It is another episode, and it's probably a multi-part episode, by the way, of Disney Lied to You. And those are some of my favorites because they're kind of fun. And it's not meant to be a dig at any Disney franchise. I love Disney. I grew up loving Disney. But it's kind of fun to point out, you know, stuff like uh, Zeus was not this chummy football dad. Or um, Hercules was not devoted, loving husband to Megara, you know, it's just fun to kind of point out the differences and where Disney cleaned things up a little bit, and that is not to say that I disagree with them. I think displaying Zeus as he actually was, or Sleeping Beauty as it actually happened, would be way too traumatic for little kids, so I totally get why they tone these things down, and today we're going to do Beauty and the Beast, and uh, hopefully you love it. Like most fairy tales, Beauty and the Beast was originally created for an adult audience. In 1756, Madame de Beaumont adapted the original story from Delneuve. This was then adapted in 1889, again by my friend and yours, Andrew Lang. It then began to circle the globe, which Andrew Lang, I love for the different colored fairy books. Those are super, super fun if you ever have a chance to collect and read on some of those. So definitely uh, check those out anytime you have the opportunity. They have fairy stories from all around the world, and I just love them. So I love that Andrew Lang kind of got his hands on this story at one point as well. Now, like the Disney version, we start with the history of the beast. While expecting her first child, Queen Regina's husband was wounded and fell terribly ill. She prayed that a good fairy might come along and save her homeland. Unfortunately, this was not to be. Her son was born without a father. It was then, as he nursed for the first time, that a fairy finally appeared. Regina tried to make herself presentable as the thin, spidery fairy hobbled towards her. She may look like a feeble, impossibly old woman, but fairies' power often gave them rank above that of royalty, and she wanted to make a good impression. Hazel, the fairy, spoke with a voice that was crackling and dry as ancient leaves ready to crumble to dust. Her eyes were set so deeply into her heavily wrinkled waxy gray skin that it was hard to say whether she could see anything at all around her. 
You will now give the child to me, she stated, stated sternly, as though it were as obvious as daylight. I will see to his education. She promised the kingdom would thrive under a well-educated prince. Regina hesitated. Fairies were notoriously easy to displease, and when angered, their wrath could topple nations. But Kingsley was her son, and all that was left of his father, the heir they had waited so long for. She was, was she truly expected to give him away for years at a time immediately after their first meeting? She could tell that in her silence, her supernatural guest was already beginning to seethe. She changed the topic and offered to allow Hazel to be Kingsley's fairy godmother. She would live here in the castle and help to raise and educate the future king. Hazel didn't even look at Regina. She stared hungrily at Kingsley like he was something to eat, but she agreed. Over the next three years, Regina was stuck in a state of anxiety and vigilance. She felt like the second Kingsley was out of her grasp, she would catch Hazel leading or carrying him off somewhere. It was terrifying in a way that she didn't know how to explain. Regina was distracted from this when her kingdom was attacked by a neighboring army. With her husband dead and her son unready, she needed to lead her army into victory. Her son would be alone with a woman who looked at him like a hawk looked at a mouse. Regina kissed her son goodbye for what she hoped would not be the last time, and as soon as she was out of sight, Hazel used her magic to make herself and the young king vanish to her castle. There she educated and doted upon him for five years. Whenever Kingsley asked where his mother was and why she never visited, Hazel sharply told him that he was to call her mother now. This confused the boy even more, but he complied. The fairy told the boy that he looked just like his father, so it broke his mother's heart to see him, which is why she never visited. After all, he was only eight years old, too young to cope with the knowledge that the queen was fighting a war the fairy herself may have caused. She advised the boy to write letters to his mother, and for the next five years, not one of those letters left Hazel's palace. And by age 13, Kingsley was also beginning to wonder why he could never leave the palace either. One day, Hazel told Kingsley she needed to go on an errand, and she vanished leaving him for three years. Invisible servants saw to his every need, and he used his time alone to discover a magical barrier that held him captive in the castle. He was a prisoner. To the 16-year-old's surprise, Hazel suddenly reappeared one day as if she had never been gone. Hello, mother, the boy greeted gruffly, avoiding eye contact. Hazel seemed to bristle at the greeting. She allowed her gaze to linger on him as she told him that now he, that he was a man, he should call her Hazel. He apologized and asked about Queen Regina and the war. She explained that the queen was not on her way to fetch him yet, and they would have plenty more time alone together. The next day, she summoned him for a talk. Fear gripped him as he assumed she was going to tell him that the war had claimed his mother. What she had to say was even more indecent. The temperamental old tumbleweed wanted to marry him. She said that her power would ensure their kingdom's success, and she was offering him a great honor. Kingsley shied away from marrying someone so far from his age and species. 
He wanted someone to grow old with, and that could never happen with somebody who had already grown old without him. The idea made him feel very lonely and sad. Still, he knew it was dangerous to anger the fairy. Hazel tapped her three-inch cracked yellow nails on the table, waiting impatiently for him to show his delight and appreciation. He felt trapped and cornered. Wisely, he started with flattery. A great being like a fairy should never be held back by, a being, by being wed to a common mortal. But Hazel countered that he wasn't common. He was a king. It was a good match. She reminded him that she herself had raised him to be an ideal king and husband. Her ideal husband, in fact. And here, he thought, the greatest obstacle for marriage would be the parents. Instead, it's an infatuated fairy. Wait, the parents! He insisted that they needed to ask for his mother's blessing. They found her in the thick of battle, Kingsley insisted that he join in and aid his men in their victory. Whether this inspired the men, or whether Hazel truly was behind the war all along, he led his men to an amazing, fast, final victory. The kingdom rejoiced that the 15-year war was over, and with it, his ability to stall. So, now he's kind of got to make a decision. He was going to use battle to buy himself a little time. His mother was... All that stood between him and Hazel now. The queen nearly laughed at the request. She stated that the two were not well matched. Hazel replied that she had put in all of the work required to raise this child, and she deserved to have him for herself. She'd earned it. Or him, rather. Let's not forget that they're, they're talking about a human being. When Hazel tried to pull the young man away by force, he replied that without a blessing, he could not marry her. She frowned. The only reason he didn't want to marry her was because she was no longer beautiful. Otherwise, they were equals in every way, power, education, bloodline. He was too young to realize the foolishness of valuing beauty. After all, beauty passes away swiftly. She thought she could see his fading away right now. With a wave of her hand, she cursed him with stupidity and turned him into a monster, attacking both his looks and his brains which in the story up until now, both have been kind of praised to the hilt, right? So to attack both of these things gets rid of both of his best qualities. He would remain that way until a young maiden willingly entered his castle, sure that he would kill her, and instead agreed to marry him. Regina begged to take the curse upon herself instead, but the fairy simply laughed and vanished. Both the queen and the young king were about to attempt suicide when another fairy... Rose intervened. Upon hearing the story, Rose decided to help. She could not undo the work of a senior fairy, but she could try to help him break the curse. And this is something that is surprisingly consistent from story to story, because we see the same line from one of the good fairies in Sleeping Beauty when they're talking about, you know, basically the fairy tale equivalent of Maleficent, that I cannot undo what my elder has created. So this must be kind of a pretty common thread in fairy stories, this hierarchy of fairies based on age. The older you are, the more power you have. It's kind of the opposite of what we see in Lord of the Rings, where the older you are, the more of your power you've used up. And so while you ha may have more wisdom, you probably have a less power so far as magic is concerned, because all of the characters in Lord of the Rings are kind of started with this finite amount of power that wears out over time. With fairies, 
it seems to be the opposite because it on many, many stories we see that a younger fairy cannot undo what has been put forward by an older fairy. And so naturally, for some reason, the older fairies seem to be the grumpy ones that cause all the trouble and all of these young fairies really can't do a whole lot about it. So Rose shows up and she decides she's going to try and do what she can to help break the curse. But as a weaker fairy, we're not sure how helpful that actually is. It's a nice gesture, I guess. <laughs> she turned each of the servants in the castle into a statue so that the word of the king's transformation would not spread. And she hid the castle deep in a dense fog. Rose would only allow entrance to the castle to someone who could help, and Regina would need to continue ruling on behalf of her son, basically Queen Regent as she has been for 15 years now, holding this kingdom and keeping it running until the time that her son is able to take the throne. The castle was enchanted to care for the beast, who was left alone in yet another enchanted prison. So it's kind of a rough deal for Kingsley here, which is the name I've chosen for him, because of course in these fairy tales they all have lots and lots and lots of different names. And so, yeah, he's basically moved from being trapped in one magical castle to trapped in another one. On one hand, you know, it's it's kind of nice knowing that all of your needs are met and you don't have to do anything for it. But on the other hand, you can never leave and you never have any choices. So, I think it was Ben Franklin who said something about those who would give up freedom for comfort deserve neither. And uh, this poor kid didn't even give up his freedom. It was taken from him and he's only 16. It's kind of an interesting twist as far as this story goes because we lots of times, especially in modern times, people complain about fairy tales objectifying women and treating women like they're objects that can just be passed from one patriarch to another and stuff like that. Well, this story flips that on its head and very, very deliberately makes it so the prince is, or in this case, the king, I guess, because he was born king, his father had already passed away. He is kind of fought over as a physical object by both the fairy and his mother. I think less so by his mother, who is more fighting on his behalf. But at the same time, she didn't ask him whether he wanted to marry the fairy either. She just says, you two aren't a good match. And how does she know? She's barely met this kid, you know? So she was right, but it's just interesting to me that there's no mention that she asked for his input in the matter and just across the board made that decision for him. On the other hand, we have Hazel, again, the name that I've chosen for the character. I named all the fairies after plants who also just feels that she deserves to own this person because she has fed him for a certain amount of years. And that's, of course, equally, if not more, inappropriate. The story also gives some hints to uh, very, very inappropriate affections from, from Hazel towards the prince that are certainly not reciprocated in any way. So, you know, it's it's interesting to see a fairy tale that instead of the knight winning the princess in a joust, it's kind of the opposite where the prince here is being literally physically pulled in one direction or the other and is seen as kind of the prize in this situation. So it's an interesting twist. And I don't think, I think this kind of thing does happen more often than you suspect in fairy tales. I think we're so busy complaining about how unfeminist all of these fairy tales are that we don't really pay that much attention to the fact that the guys don't exactly get away easy in most of these as well. So in my last story about Cuchulain, 
you know, Kukulin is unfaithful to Emer. He does just kind of take her and leave her father's castle, that kind of thing. So he's obviously the boss applesauce in that relationship. However, we see in this one, it's both of the women that are completely dominant over this young boy. So I do think, I think it happens almost equally in fairy tales, but I think because of the whole squeaky wheel effect and, you know, it's popular to protest specific things in our culture at any given time. I think the abuse of women is no more common than the abuse of men in fairy tales. I just think that it gets a lot more attention because it's a popular thing to protest. Nobody wants to stick up for the European straight guy in these <laughs> stories. They're just going to stick up for the damsel. And I think the prince in this story, especially as a 16-year-old, which back in that day was an okay to, age to get married, but in our culture, that's a child. I'm kind of with his mom on this one. He needs somebody to advocate for him in this situation. But um, yeah, that's just my take. You know, I don't, I don't think women should be treated as objects, but I do think that it's equally sinful for that treatment to happen to a young man. So I guess by normal standards, that would be considered feminist because I want women to be equal. But by today's standards, it's not considered feminist because I don't want something bad to happen to a man just because he's a man. It's funny how that word has turned from, hey, we would like to also vote to, uh, yeah, we want to beat down men and we just hate those guys. So in a classical definition, <laughs> I would say that this is, it's, I don't know. I don't know how to address this. I'm just I think it is equally wrong when abuse happens to either gender, and I think it is ten times as wrong when it happens to a child. And the prince, in this point in time, by my definition, is a child and should not be having to go through any of this, especially at the hand of two women that are meant to be his caretakers. So while some crazy uber-feminist out there is probably rooting because somebody's picking on a young boy instead of picking on a young girl, it's still bad. Be quiet. If you were really so loving and liberating, then you would care just as much when a boy child, again, a child is abused as a female child because it's a child, you know, and it's a human. It shouldn't matter what gender they are. You shouldn't want to see any human be subjected to torment. And so, you know, it, it's rough to me to see the beast, this prince, be kind of shoved into this castle situation and literally move from one prison to another his entire life. And unlike the Disney movie where when we first meet the prince, he's kind of a brat. Like nobody wants to put up with this kid. And I think while well, the fairy in that one, I think they called her an enchantress, definitely overreacted. You can't just go around cursing kids just for them being brats, especially when you consider doing the math in that one. He was probably 10 years old when she cursed him. You know, contrary to the movies animating him as a young adult, they say that his curse then lasted 10 years and ended when he was like 21. So this is a 10 or 11 year old child, even though he's drawn to look like an adult. So Disney's was a brat, but he's still a kid. And the Enchantress definitely overreacted there. So we have some, some real child abuse themes happening, even kind of in the the Disney version, but at least he was like a, a detestable little snot. Like you did not like this kid, this guy in the actual fairy tale whom I have named Kingsley. He really hasn't done anything wrong. Like he's unlike the Disney prince. He, this guy has done nothing to call down this kind of wrath 
and lifetime imprisonment upon himself the way the Disney version did. So I'm hoping everything works out for him. But you know, in these classic fairy tales, everything doesn't always work out for, <laughs> for people. And so here's hoping, and I hope you'll tune in next week. We'll, we'll wish for the best for this kid because he's only been alive 16 years and they've been a rough. 16 years so um yeah i mean psychologically this kid has just got to be wrecked too right i mean he spent his whole life in solitude with a sociopath who gets a little too friendly with kids so his ability to empathize with other people and everything has got to be just messed up which is crazy when you consider that he's still nicer than the Disney version of this prince at this point in the story, which is really sad. That guy at least saw other humans and had a better reason to empathize. Yeah, who knows? But we're just going to sit here and wait for next episode and hope that things turn out for the best for this kid because he deserves it. This was definitely a huge overreaction. You have a wonderful day and thank you so much for tuning in. Hey everyone, welcome back to Southern Fried Storytime. I'm so excited to continue Beauty and the Beast with you today. Today we're going to talk about Queen Regina from the last episode, her twin brother, Reginald, who is super thrilled right now. This guy's psyched because the love of his life has just accepted his proposal of marriage. Like his sister, he rules his own kingdom, and little known to him, the commoner, shepherdess girl that he thought he was marrying is actually a fairy because they are sprinkled all over this story like those little yucky sprinkles that taste like wax that everybody puts on donuts because they're pretty but they taste like a bunch of nothing yeah there you go that's my thoughts on sprinkles and fairies <laughs> the couple was married in a quiet civil ceremony the fairy loved being married to him but could not bear to tell him the truth because it's illegal for fairies to marry humans and uh, so she didn't want to tell him that Daisy the Shepherdess is actually Daisy the Fairy. Why is this a bigger issue for her than it is for Hazel? Because Hazel is one of the oldest fairies in existence. And so even though marrying a human like Kingsley, like she tried to marry, is against the law, she's powerful enough to just kind of pull it off and most of the other fairies will leave her alone. Daisy, on the other hand, is much, much younger and she's still held accountable by the fairy queen. So she keeps her secret and performs quiet acts of good around the country whenever she's able to. Two years later, she brought their baby girl into the world, and she was terrified for the child who was the product of forbidden love. Still, everything seemed to be fine until the time came to report her deeds to the queen of the fairies. This is like her, her annual performance review, right? Queen Magnolia was concerned. A nearby kingdom was enduring a terrible famine, and Daisy had used none of her power to help. Now that the kingdom had attacked its neighbor to try and gain more fertile farmland, this all could have been prevented if Daisy had shared her gifts with more than one kingdom. What on earth was she up to? The queen gave her one year to spread her fairy duties around the world. How could Daisy keep her secret now? Worse than that, she could not bear to leave her daughter behind. The year flew by, and Queen Magnolia finally felt the need to intervene. She dispatched a few spies to see what Daisy was wasting her time on. They found her kissing the king. And what was worse, they found a baby so beautiful 
so well behaved that it had to be part fairy. I don't know. I don't think they've heard of changelings here because I, I understand some of these fairy babies are not particularly well behaved. Maybe that's a difference between English and Irish folklore versus French folklore. Those changelings are supposed to be kidnapped by fairies and replaced with a fairy baby, and they're supposed to be pretty nasty little things. So apparently I'm going to take these guys' word for it that because the, the fairy was such a good little baby and so beautiful that she must be a fairy baby. But it goes against everything I've heard about fairy babies up until this point. <sighs> anyway, Daisy had broken the strictest law of the fairies, and this child was an abomination. Daisy was summoned before the fairy council, where she was sentenced to imprisonment. There, the oldest fairy on the council dealt out her curse. Daisy's husband would hate her, and her daughter would marry a monster. When the king returned from the hunt, three... The servants could not bear to tell him that his wife had just left him, disappearing without a trace. So they told him that she had died, because that's a whole lot more comforting, and been buried. One of the older fairies on the council was confused. How could this strange human king have fallen in love with a fairy? When she had tried to, to seduce a human, it had gone poorly. What was different about this king? Hazel was too curious to let the matter lie, so she went to the kingdom to see. She took the form of a young, beautiful princess and begged King Reginald for shelter for the night. She was simply going to speak to him about his late wife, but the moment she saw Reginald, Hazel fell in love with him. This girl's got a problem. I don't, I don't know. She falls in love with everybody that she's not supposed to have. She offered to tutor the king's daughter, and he accepted but when the king failed to pay her any special attention, she got proactive and gave him a gift. And when she made an advance, she, he told her that he had sworn an oath of loyalty to his late wife and his daughter was all he needed. Offended again, Hazel got together a bunch of women of the court who were still salty about the fact that the king had snubbed them for a common shepherdess. Together, the women all agreed to take the baby princess into the woods and kill her. As one does? No, no, never come to that conclusion before. Deep in the woods, they undressed the baby and prepared to smother her with her own blanket when they were attacked by a bear. All but one of the noble women were killed by the bear. The surviving woman assumed the baby would kill, be killed either by the bear or the cold. The bear did return to the baby and sniffed it before turning into the fairy Rose from the end of the last episode. Rose could tell that this whole situation had been set in motion by Hazel. She wasn't strong enough to fight the older fairy, so she would need to hide the poor baby. Rose found a merchant and his wife, whose baby had died in the middle of the night. Unable to save the baby, she swapped them out. She sighed. This saved the little princess for now, but she was still cursed to marry a monster. Rose knew exactly the monster for the job in 15 or 16 years. When Vincent was a successful merchant, he had not minded at all that his 12 children were all adults and still living at home. They were wealthy, and the family lived in such comfort that his six daughters were uninterested in being matched to any man lower in rank than a duke. Only the youngest, Bonnie, had a sense of humility. Bonnie was named for her great beauty, which had come to her the night she had been blessed by a fairy named Rose. Her sisters were so jealous that they sometimes wished that the fairy had just let Bonnie die. Vincent was happy. He had been able to spoil and provide for his family until the day came when he 
couldn't, and their pampered nature left them with no ability to cope with what was to come. First, his wife Charlotte passed away, suddenly, and then, after her funeral, the economy crashed and storms began to swallow the merchant ships at sea. For a while, they were able to keep up appearances, claiming that their new austerity was because they were in mourning for their mother, not because they now had a really tight budget. When their manor home burned to the ground, they were forced to abandon all pretense. They were forced to move to a tiny cottage that Vincent had bought in order to rent to poor tenant farmers. He tried to push his kids to marry, but when their fortunes dried up, so did their pool of suitors. Funny how that works. So, remember how in Disney's Beauty and the Beast, how in the opening song, Belle is kind of dunking on all the quote-unquote poor provincial people in her new town? Remember how that seemed kind of nasty from the character that was supposed to be the protagonist? That's because Belle is a very spoiled, rich city girl who had recently fallen socially, and while her nature is to be kind and sympathetic, she still has lived a life where she wouldn't look twice at any of these people— and is having a hard time wrapping her head around the fact that she's no longer, quote-unquote, above them, because it all seems to have happened in just a few weeks in the story. Like, these these guys fall fast. In the book, she has siblings who take this worse than she does, so she does shine by comparison, but her family fell all the way down the social ladder and hit every single run on the way down really fast, like a really short amount of time in which this descent takes place. Here in America, we say, too bad, so sad, get a job and get over it. But in Europe, in this time period, your social status might matter more than your financial status. And what her father spent decades building was lost in a few weeks. When you've lost your social status, you've lost all prospects for the future and marriage, and this is bound to be something of a culture shock, even if, like Belle, you're a good-natured person. Bonnie took on the responsibility for the farm and helped out around the house until they got the letter. One of their long-lost merchant ships had docked at port. Vincent was summoned to fetch it, but was warned that the crew had been through a lot and were eager to sell the goods quickly no matter the price. He had to hurry or he might not get much of anything. Vincent told his kids, and immediately their hopes were high. They asked for gifts from the city, gowns, jewels, exotic foods, and fancy weapons. Bonnie remained silent. She knew that even at maximum profit, one ship was not enough to bring their old lifestyle back, and this would certainly not be maximum profit. Vincent asked what gift she wanted, and at first she refused, but on further prodding, she asked for a rose, since she hadn't seen one since they'd moved out of the city. Vincent made the long journey, only to find that everything had been sold before he got there. On the way home, a deep snowstorm hit him. Wolves circled, spooking his horse, who threw him to the ground. He wandered through the thick fog that soaked his clothes and chilled his bones until he reached a mighty castle and knocked on the door. As soon as the door swung open, he could find no sign of who had let him in. He warmed himself by the fire, but was startled to see no other soul in the castle. There was nothing but a fireplace and a large dining table set for one. He had barely eaten since they lost their fortune, and the smell of perfect meat pie with flaky pastry, rich wine, and silky chocolate mousse for dessert woke a hungry animal that he didn't know was lurking within him. 
He devoured the meal with a ferocity that only embarrassed him after the fact. Now there was nothing to do but seek his host in earnest and ask for forgiveness. He passed through the room after ornate room until his feet would carry him no further. He fell asleep in a chair and awoke to a hearty breakfast on a tray at his side. Vincent called out his thanks to the empty air and ate and wandered through the gardens on his way out. There he saw a magnificent rose like a blossoming sunset, and he knew it was perfect for his bonnie. He looked around briefly before he reached his fingertips out to snap the green stem. The world spun and he, as he was violently flung backwards, barely registering a vicious roar that shook the ground and seemed to come from every direction. When he gathered himself, Vincent saw a massive, bulky creature standing over him. Thick boar tusks sprouted from behind a split cat-like lips. The nose looked like the snout of a dog wreathed by a lion's mane and ram's horns crowned on the top of his head. Boar-like ridges bristled down the creature's spine and the body somehow looked like a lion, a wolf, and a bear all at once. His front legs ended in vicious claws and his black back legs ended in equally sharp black hooves and his whole body was coated in thick, coarse, black and brown fur. Another deep growl rumbled from its chest. You accept my hospitality, then dare to steal from me, came the creature's deep, gravelly voice. Vincent begged the beast not to kill him so that he could return to his children. The beast paused and seemed to consider this. Thank you for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed the continuation of the story. Next week, we're going to take a brief pause from Beauty and... Or next week, yeah. Next episode, we're going to take a brief pause from Beauty and the Beast to focus on a story that may have, in fact, likely did inspire it. These two stories have grown further and further apart throughout time, but you can still see some similarities there. And so I did want to go ahead and touch on it just because it feels wrong to not briefly jump over that story. A lot of you probably already know it, so I don't need to go into a ton of detail, but because the similarities are still there, um, I will go over it, even though they've, again, grown into totally different stories at this point. So uh, I hope you'll enjoy that brief break before we return back to Beauty and the Beast. Have a wonderful day. Hey everyone, welcome back to Southern Fried Storytime. We're going to take a brief break from Beauty and the Beast to try to explore some of the possible origins and uh, kind of related stories to Beauty and the Beast. I am recording in a different room of the house today, so you'll have to bear with me if it does sound a little different. I'm trying to see if this room cancels out more of the background noise than the room that I normally like recording in because it's bright and sunny, but that's because it has tons of windows, so it is a little noisier. So if you could just shoot me a message on Facebook or on my webpage or wherever and tell me whether you prefer the sound of recording here or our regular recordings, just, just let me know. First, we're going to start with somewhere you probably don't expect me to go, and that's the story of Baron and Luthien from the legend of like the Lord of the Rings in J.R.R. Tolkien's world. This actually comes from the Silmarillion, so we're going to have to go into Silmarillion 101. This is a really basic kind of my wrap-up of the Silmarillion, so if you want to get a really good, you know, look at what it really is like, I highly encourage you to either read it yourself or check out the Prancing Pony podcast 
or oh, the Broken Sword on YouTube is another good channel that can explain a lot of what's going on in the Silmarillion. So definitely check it out. It's an excellent, excellent story from which this is kind of a a uh, translated excerpt, I guess is what I'll call it. So starting with Silmarillion 101, it, there's Eru Iluvatar, which is basically this world's equivalent of the Judeo-Christian God, the one God overall, the great creator. Next in the pantheon are the Valar, which are demigods and elementals, such as, you know, a water spirit and a hunt, spirit of the hunt. This is much more like the Greek or the Norse pantheon, where there are several gods, cap you know, smaller gods capable of doing separate things. There are 12 of these folks, plus one that is often not counted because he's the bad guy. He, his name is Morgoth. He's more powerful than the other Valar, but I often wonder if that's simply because as the only bad guy, he just doesn't put any limits on himself. I don't know. Then, third in this ranking is, of course, the Maiar, which are kind of the equivalent to angels and demons. These are the wizards, Balrogs, Sauron, who is kind of the big bad from the Lord of the Rings movies that we're familiar with, Ungoliant, which is a Maiar who takes the form of a giant spider. We'll see Maiar can can choose, pick and choose different forms for themselves. And then, of course, the eagles. So we get several different kind of ranges here. Wizards are kind of like humans. They can go back and forth and be good or bad. Belrog, Sauron, and Ungoliant are exclusively bad, being corrupted by Morgoth early in the creation of the world. And then eagles are always exclusively good. So when the eagles give you advice, you definitely want to follow it because they're kind of the incorruptible good guys. As we've seen, wizards can go either way. Now, when I talk about Arda, I am talking about the world of Lord of the Rings. Middle-earth, where we meet Frodo and Bilbo and all the characters we're familiar with, is one continent in the world of Arda. So, when I talk about Arda, I am talking about that world. And at the beginning of Arda, the whole world was lit by two lamps, and it was just day, time, all the time. However, those lamps were taken out by Morgoth. In response, the Valar made two trees, one gold and one silver, and filled them with light to light the world. At the same time, the Silmarils were three gems that contained that same light, and they were created. Later, like a lot later, Morgoth returned and stole the Silmarils and smote each of the trees so that Ungoliant, the spider, could drink the light from within them, which made her stronger. When Morgoth then refused to give her the Silmarils to eat, as they had arranged previously, they have a real bad breakup, guys, and some Belrogs need to step in and rescue Morgoth from Ungoliant. He sets the glorious Silmarils, which seem to cause a similar obs obsession as the One Ring, um, in an iron crown. They cause him so much pain that they char his flesh black because he is dark and they are light, but his greed matters more to him than his pain. Elsewhere, the Maya, or angel, named Melian, married Thingol, the elf. There are only three instances in all of the stories of Middle-earth where an elf marries a non-elf, which is why people get so, so salty about the dwarf-elf romance in the Hobbit movie, which we don't see in the Hobbit or any other book. It's, it's incredibly rare for elves to marry outside of their own species, and when they do, it tends to literally change the entire world and history as we see here. So it's kind of a big deal, and that's why people get pretty upset about the fact that the makers of the movies just kind of threw one in there. Because it kind of cheapens the marriages that were actually a big deal in the stories. 
All of these three mixed marriages occur within the same family, and it starts here with Melian and Thingol. In this case, I think it's pretty clear that Thingol really married up. Because remember that hierarchy I was talking about before? Maya being third on that list, elves come down afterwards. They are called the children of Iluvatar, but they are nowhere near the power of a Maya or the wisdom of a Maya. So Thingol did good. He married way better than his station. Melian is often seen giving very wise counsel to those around her, and of course, no one ever listens, hence why so much goes wrong in the Silmarillion. These two have a daughter named Luthien, who is considered the most beautiful of all of Iluvatar's children. And now, my friends, the stage is set. Enter Baron. He descends from a noble line of men who are close friends with Thingol's brother, and he wears an elfish ring as an evidence slash way to identify this that they're they're elf friends so he should be a good match for luthien but one he's a mortal man and she's way immortal like more immortal immortal and magical than most elves two he has no kingdom or lands due to the many wars and political issues in this story that i'm not going to spend forever getting into again prancing pony podcast guys or three Ain't nobody good enough for Thingol's little girl, but not like in a protective way, in a possessive way. He actually refers to her as an object he owns. Both Baron and Thingol refer to refer to Luthien as a treasure, but Baron does it in the context of saying that he treasures her, whereas Thingol refers to her as a treasure or a thing that he owns and collects. Baron has gotten separated from his companions and lost in the same woods where Shelob lives. You know, Shelob, the spider that Sam slays to, fr- to save Frodo, sister of the spiders that attack Bilbo and the dwarves in Mirkwood, daughter of Ungoliant who sucked the life uh, out of the trees. Yeah, that jerk. He somehow made it through the evils and the fog and the monsters and the labyrinth. The labyrinth was actually put there by Melian. It's called the uh, the Girdle of Melian. It's there to protect her husband's her and her husband's forest. So that's that's there on purpose. It's supposed to be impenetrable. Somehow Baron gets through, which leads me to believe that Melian let him through, <laughs> because I don't see if if Shelob can't get through, and Baron can. I I think Melian let him through. That's just me. It doesn't say that, but I just don't see any other way where a mortal man's getting through that magical barrier. Anyway, so it stays around the elven realm, and he experiences such such horror here that he is unable to speak of it until the day he dies. This is notable because he does spend a considerable amount of time in Sauron's dungeon and doesn't seem to be that traumatized by that kind of situation, which to me... Sounds really, really awful. So if this was so much worse than that that he can't even speak of it, something awful must have happened in these forests. During these wanderings, Baron stumbled into a hemlock grove where he found Luthien, singing and dancing in the safety of her father's forest. Baron's trials had made him look wild and savage as a dangerous beast, and when Luthien saw him she was afraid and ran away. But he had fallen in love with her instantly, and as she she ran, he called out to her, calling her Tenuviel, or the elfish word for nightingale. She paused, realizing that he was in fact a person, and as she inspected him closer, she also fell in love with him. Their eyes met, and they gazed into each other's eyes for the better part of a year. A year, guys. That's, That's a long time. If you've ever had a staring contest, 
I couldn't make it that long. That's for darn sure. I don't know if I have a lot of guys listening to this podcast. I tend to think of it as more female centric. Fairy tales were created, you know, as a way for women to tell stories to other women while they were working and stuff like that. And just somehow I consider that I'm probably most of the time talking to other ladies. But if there are some brothers out there listening, my bros, this should not be your go-to move. If you see a lovely lady that you think you want to marry, the long-term stare-down is not going to make that that happen. The long-term stare-down is going to make her escalate from pepper spray to hand cannon, guys. This is not going to be a winner just because it was for Baron. It, it, it's fiction for a reason. This would not work. Do not try this. <laughs> try this. But it works for Luthien, and they began to see each other secretly after that. One of Luthien's friends, though, was jealous because he was in love with her, so he naturally sold her out to her father, who then captured Baron and brought him before him, though he swore to Luthien that he would not kill him. This came in handy, because he almost immediately did want to kill him, and uh, even more so when Baron asked for Luthien's hand. Thingol is very insulting in this confrontation with Baron, but Baron doesn't rise to it. it the only time he even kind of says anything back is when he says, hey, my dad and your brother are really good friends and I don't think I've done anything to deserve you treating me this way when our families have had a really good relationship until now. But uh, yeah, in other words, he doesn't rise to it really. Melian also advises her husband to be thoughtful and not to do anything rash, which again, to me, reinforces the thought that maybe she let Baron in in the first place. As always, though, no one listens to Melian, and Thingol sends Baron on what he thinks is an impossible suicide quest as a bride price. He wants a Silmaril from the crown of Morgoth. Whole armies of elves and men have been sent at Morgoth and failed. So, okay, think about how powerful Sauron is in Lord of the Rings and all of the armies that are unable to defeat him and all of that kind of thing. This guy was Sauron's boss and superior officer. Sauron is this guy's servant. So this guy is so much worse. And naturally, Thingol assumes he's never going to see Baron again when sending him on this task. When Baron lightheartedly says that, you know, it's a small price to pay to be with Luthien. Melian tries yet again to reason with her husband. So far, their realm has been able to stay out of the conflict with Margoth, and the Silmarils seem to cause strife wherever they go. You don't even really want to talk about the Silmarils, let alone get one for yourself. They're nothing but trouble. Of course, he dismisses her, and Baron goes to find the jewel. Some elves have the gift of foresight, and as a half-Maya, Luthien is more powerful than your average elf. She had a vision of Baron suffering in the prison of Morgoth's lieutenant, Sauron. In early versions of Tolkien's tale, Sauron was the king of cats, and he was literally like a giant anthropomorphic cat, like the Thundercats, guys. And I'm so glad he didn't stick with this, because it'd be hard to feel that same kind of shadowy menace from a great big cat. It would make it too comical. But at the same time, it makes what happens later, and uh, who gets the upper end of him in a fight in this story kind of kind of interesting so i do kind of like that that's where tolkien's head was at just because it does make this fight later pretty interesting after this vision that luthien had she decided she had to save baron but she asked the same friend for help that had sold her out before and naturally he did it again 
Thingol, her father, had her imprisoned in the top of a massive beech tree so that she couldn't go after Baron. If you don't think that qualifies her as a maiden in the tower on the Arn Thompson Uther tail-type index like Rapunzel, she literally uses her hair to escape, which would take some skills, I admit. She uses her long black hair to make it into a cloak that she can then use to enchant her captors to fall into a deep sleep, and she escaped. On her way to rescue Baron, Luthien met Huan, the Hound of Valinor, and Huan loved Luthien immediately and brought, him to, or brought her to his elf masters to keep her safe. These elves know that Luthien is an elf princess and the daughter of Amaya, and since she is so, so beautiful, they plan to force her into a marriage for political gain in order to build an alliance with Thingol, and they capture her. Huan feels really badly about this. He is the best boy, and it was not his intention to get her thrown into any kind of prison. And whenever one of these elf lords wanted to make an advance on Luthien, they found the giant dog the size of a horse, faithfully protecting her from his own masters. One day, Luthien was worried because Huan seemed to have left her, until he reappeared and dropped her magic cloak at her feet and used one of his only three times that the Valar granted for him to speak to tell her how to escape, and they ran away together. Eventually, they made it to Sauron's stronghold, and Sauron sends werewolves out one by one to kill them. But with Luthien's magic and Huan's strength, they slay them all, until Sauron himself eventually had to come out in the form of a great wolf. Huan grabbed Sauron by the neck in his jaws, and as the deceiver changed forms and fought desperately, he was unable to escape the Hound of Valinor, until he turned into a vampire and flew away, bleeding from his neck. The irony of a vampire being the one bleeding from his neck is not lost on me, guys. Here, when Luthien is reunited with Baron, Huan parted ways with the couple and returned to his master. But when they meet his again, his master wants to kill Luthien because her escape led to him kind of getting exiled. So he's mad at her about it. So Huan turned on him and protected the couple. Using his second chance to speak, he told them that he would enter Angband and bring them the skins of two of Morgoth's servants with which they had disguised themselves. Luthien danced and used her magic on Morgoth until he fell into a deep sleep and Baron was able to pry a Silmaril from his crown, fulfilling the bride price of having a Silmaril in his hand. Unfortunately, during their escape, that same hand was eaten by Kerkaroth, the greatest of werewolves, Silmaril and all. Swallowed the whole thing, guys. After this, Huan and Thingol joined Baron to hunt down the werewolf and to get the stone back and to get rid of this werewolf who has been driven kind of insane by the Silmaril and is just causing all kinds of problems. Baron and Huan slay Kerkaroth, but Huan is mortally wounded. His last chance to speak was to bid his beloved Baron and Luthien farewell, and then he passes away with Baron's palm on his head. Baron was then carried home to Luthien, where he too died of his wounds. Broken-hearted, Luthien also laid down and died, and went to the halls of Mandos, Lord of the Dead. She was so broken-hearted that Mandos gave her a choice. She could remain here in the halls of Mandos with her people forever, but without Baron, or she can have a mortal life with Baron. She obviously chose door number two, and Mandos would never give this sort of choice to anyone ever again. 
Together, they have one child, who would be the grandfather of Lord Elrond, father of Arwen, who makes a similar choice as Luthien when she marries Aragorn, being the last of the three elves to marry outside of their race. As for Luthien's father, Thingol, he is gifted a necklace by a dwarven king. And I lost my place. Ah, here he is. And since he's become obsessed with the Silmaril, he wants to put the Silmaril into this necklace so he can wear it all the time and never be parted from it. He asks for some dwarves to do this and they agree on a payment, but spending time with the Silmaril makes them want it too. They demand the necklace, and stone and all, as payment, claiming that they have a right to it since it was once dwarfish. The elf is upset at the dwarves for reneging on their deal, and the dwarves kill Thingol, who should have listened to Melian, and left the Silmaril alone in the first place. The dwarves then also raided Thingol's treasury at the same time, because why not at this point? Baron then chased down the dwarves and took back the necklace which Luthien wore for the rest of the days of her life, which was shortened by the stone. I couldn't find anything real on why the stone shortened the lives of Baron and Luthien, only that it did, and because, like no land could hold so much glory or something really vague like that. So there's no specifics on why this made their lives shorter, but it did. This was also the start of all of the discord between elves and dwarves. Which lasted until literally the Battle of the Ring. Next, we have the story of Cupid and Psyche. First of all, Cupid is not what you think. Cupid, or Eros, was not a chubby baby with wings and a bow. He was actually a very handsome young man, with wings and a bow. Both gods and mortals feared Cupid because, as we all know, he shot, you know, a shot with one of his golden arrows could make one fall in love. But what most people don't know is that he also had lead arrows that could cause hatred. He was known for being mischievous and a bit of a bratty prankster, so most people and gods tried to stay out of his way. Psyche is a mortal princess so beautiful that people were starting to leave the temples of Aphrodite in order to worship her. Spoiler alert, Aphrodite hates it when she is not the center of attention, so she ordered her son, Eros, to make Psyche fall in love with the most detestable human on the planet. This seems like an overreaction, but trust me, it's totally in character for her. While prepping his golden arrow, though, Eros accidentally injures himself and falls in love with Psyche. Around the same time, Psyche's father begins to get frustrated because while she has lots of obsessed fans, she's had no real suitors. So he went to where everyone goes when they want to stir up trouble, an oracle. Don't believe me? I have a whole season on Greek mythology and stuff like that, and these the oracles are all over it like cheese on pasta, guys. It's lots of oracle stuff happening there. The oracle told Psyche's dad that she was destined to marry a horrible monster and that Zeus himself was afraid of this monster. He would be required to bring her to a mountainside where she would meet her monstrous husband. Once she was there, Zephyrus, the spirit of the west wind, picked her up and brought her to a magnificent palace. And uh, in this palace, there were more riches than anyone can imagine. She was waited on hand and foot by invisible servants, and every night her husband would visit her, cloaked with invisibility. Eros was afraid of what Aphrodite would do if she found out that he had married the woman she hated, and he was afraid that a relationship between a god and a mortal could not last. Looking at Zeus as an example, I can see why he thought that. 
Still, the more time the two spent together and got to know each other, the more they fell in love. One day, Psyche asked to see her two older sisters, thinking that they would be happy to find out that she's alive and doing so well. Eros agrees as long as she promised not to believe the terrible things that they would say about him. When the sisters arrive, they're struck with anger and jealousy as both are stuck in unhappy marriages to much older men, as tended to happen to princesses. So they convince Psyche that her husband is a hideous monster who wants to kill her, and she'd better kill him first. She brought a lamp and a knife to her bedroom, and when her husband fell asleep, she lit the lamp only to see a shockingly handsome man with white feathery wings. When she leaned forward for a better look, a drop of hot oil fell on Eros and burned him. Furious and feeling betrayed, he left her. Her sisters then each threw themselves off the same cliff that the West Wind took her from to try their chances with Eros. Yeah, they died. Then Psyche tried going to the various temples to find Eros, and even the goddess of marriage herself, Hera, said that as much as she wanted to help, and so did some of the other Olympians, they could not risk angering Aphrodite. You want the Trojan War? That's how you get the Trojan War! When she finds out Aphrodite is looking for her, Psyche then just decides to turn herself in. Aphrodite orders Psyche to complete four labors to get her blessing, which, like a thingal, she never really intends to give. First, Aphrodite rips off Psyche's clothes and beats her almost to death. Just excessive, but fine. Then she has her sort a pile of wheat, barley, chickpeas, and lentils into separate piles. Hearing the princess cry, a bunch of local ants decide to help out, giving me huge Cinderella vibes on this story, guys. Next, Aphrodite orders her to grab a tuft of golden fleece from the nearby sheep. The sheep were massive and very aggressive. Aphrodite was hoping that this task would get the princess killed. But a nearby river told Psyche to wait until the afternoon when the sheep calmed down a little bit and then pluck the fleece that had gotten caught in the grass and branches and twigs as the sheep had played. Next, Aphrodite sent Psyche to collect cold water from the highest point of a spring, where she would find hundreds of deadly snakes. Feeling that this was just a little bit unfair, Zeus sent his eagle to take the jug and fill it for her. Look at you, Zeus, doing something nice. Maybe there's some personal growth there. I don't know, maybe he just wants to be on Eros's good side, seeing as there's a lot of love trouble in that guy's life. Either way, you don't often see Zeus doing a good thing, and so we're gonna we're gonna clap our hands for him this one time. The fourth task was to go to the underworld and receive a dose of Persephone's beauty. Out of curiosity, Persephone opened the little box, because apparently she had never heard of that Pandora girl and how that kind of situation goes, only to find the sleep of Hades within. So, beauty sleep, I guess, is the secret. This knocked her unconscious in the middle of the underworld. Yeesh. Eros, however, has finally recovered from his hot oil burn and can no longer stand being away from Psyche, so he goes to the underworld, wakes her up, and takes her back. Zeus blesses the marriage, hoping that it'll help Eros, Eros calm down and mature to finally be tied into a marriage. He orders Aphrodite to back off and give Psyche ambrosia, making her the immortal goddess of the soul, and they have a massive marriage ceremony slash vow renewal because the two were already married. Interestingly, another name for Psyche is Anima, which in the 
game Final Fantasy X is the name of a summon Aeon whose own marriage outside of her race also led to great misery. You're thinking, this is great, Nikki. These are fun stories, but what does any of this have to do with Beauty and the Beast? Why would you interrupt the story for these two little ones? First of all, when Baron met Luthien, he scares her at first and is described as looking like a wild beast. Also, Huan, the horse-sized dog, is definitely a beast, and he loved the beauty. A certain class of people like to throw shade at Tolkien for not having quote-unquote strong female characters, and people often counter-argue by talking about Eowyn killing the Witch King with Mary. People often miss Huan and Luthien taking out all of Sauron's werewolves and destroying his tower. Melian and her great power and wisdom, which protected her whole kingdom with magic until she died, or the six powerful female Valar. I thought they deserved a mention and some credit. Cupid and Psyche are thought to be the inspiration for Beauty and the Beast, from a great beauty to the enchanted castle with invisible servants. The footprints are all there, but what we will get back to next week has grown into a story all its own. I just wanted to touch on Cupid and Psyche because there are so many similarities. And as I continue the story, I think you'll get to see a lot of those similarities for yourself. And I love all of these stories. You know me, I love any story about a good doggo, even though they all always inevitably make me cry. Because we can't write a story about dogs that doesn't make you want to cry so hard you throw up. Ugh! telling you, I have a rule. No dog stories and no horse stories. I kept it together for this one, but I had to read it a few times before I was able to keep it together for this one. So, you know, not doing great, guys. I like dogs. I also think it's funny that since Sauron was supposed to be the king of cats and he gets beaten by a dog, I thought that was an interesting, not Beauty and the Beast related situation, but I thought it was funny. Anyway, because these all involve Beauty and a Beast, or are a direct inspiration for Beauty and the Beast, I thought it would be interesting for you guys to see how far this story has come and changed and evolved over time before we get back to the main story. Just to kind of show you how strange this kind of side hustle job is, where I read through many different versions of these stories, and sometimes they are as far apart as Beauty and the Beast and Cupid and Psyche, but they are related and part of the same base story. And this is how we get stories that go from the basic story of Beauty and the Beast or Cupid and Psyche and become the Disney version of these stories. These stories are so, so old and ancient that they do evolve dramatically over time. Even the story of Baron and Luthien, Tolkien published three different versions of, but he wrote hundreds of different versions of that story, trying to perfect it throughout his whole life. He called it the kernel of the story, meaning the, the entire story of the ring. He considered it the most important part of the story of the ring, and on his own grave, he had the name Baron carved along with Luthien on his wife Edith's grave. The story I told you today was what he considered the most important, most precious part of the Lord of the Rings, and it, to me, ties in perfectly with our episodes on Beauty and the Beast and shows how, just as his story changed throughout his lifetime, these stories, these legends, these myths changed dramatically throughout history. And I wanted to give you a little 
peek behind the curtain to see how vastly different some of these versions of the same story can be, not just from country to country, but from century to century. And I hope that you enjoy seeing that kind of process as much as I love going through it every single week as we have these talks together. Without further ado, next episode, we'll jump right back into Beauty and the Beast. And thank you so much for listening today. Hey everyone, welcome to Beauty and the Beast, part four. While many classic fairy tales begin as verbally past folklore, this story was an early written one, though it does have many traits and archetypes find it found in oral tradition, such as in the Cub- Cupid and Psyche story that we covered last episode. On the Arne Thompson Uther Index, Beauty and the Beast is number 425C, stuck in the category with The Search for the Missing Husband. As I mentioned before, it was written in 1740 by Madame Delneuve, rather than being told as a tale, moved to paper. It has a distinct author, which is not unique for this podcast, but it is unique for older fairy tales. I mean, we've covered Charles Dickens here, so we obviously know who the author of his stories are. So it's not different for our show, but it is different for classic fairy tales. For example, Rapunzel or Little Red Riding Hood were originally passed through oral tradition. Disney, however, based their version of the tale on a later version by Beaumont. It was best, or sorry, better known and a little tamed down. It also covered a lot less detail as far as, um, kind of royal lineage and the rules among fairies and that kind of thing. So it's it's kind of a shorter, easier version of the tale. Disney had made an attempt to tell the story in the 1930s and the 1950s, but it didn't work out. Partially issues with the animation department, partially, you know, budget concerns at that time and that kind of thing. So um, by that time, Disney was wanting to get away from fairy tales for a while, I don't know why, it's where the majority of their success had been at that time. But by the late 80s, Roy Disney wanted to return to the fairy tale success that the company had enjoyed, and this proved to be a good choice when The Little Mermaid was a massive success. It was so good that they were unsure how to top it when they found Beauty and the Beast. Still some of Disney's best music. I love the soundtrack to Beauty and the Beast. There's something both very whimsical and charming, but also a little bit haunting and spooky about it. Not the uh, tracks where there's actual lyrics, but the background music of Beauty and the Beast is just absolutely gorgeous. And of course the song sung by Angela Lansbury, who adorably did not think she had a strong enough singing voice to sing Beauty and the Beast, is also lovely. So, um... Sorry if I seem a little distracted. My dog is trying to lay on my lap while I'm recording. It's very, very cute, but a little distracting. But yeah, so I I always thought that was a a cute story, how Angela Lansbury didn't think she had the pipes to pull off that song, and I can't imagine anybody doing it as well as she does. It's just adorable. I love Mrs. Potts singing um, during the dancing scene in Beauty and the Beast. But back to the original story. The beast loomed over Vincent, considering what he had said. It was easy to see that it took enormous effort, but the creature squared his shoulders and calmed himself. He remembered that the fairy, Rose, would not have allowed this man into the castle if she didn't think he could be of help somehow. He told Vincent that he had fifteen minutes to pack a trunk with all the treasure he wanted. 
At first, Vincent tried to refuse, but the beast insisted that this was to replace the support he gives his family, for he will be required to return or send one of his daughters to die in his place. She must know that the beast will kill her and come willingly anyway. Vincent went home and was somber and depressed. He could not believe he had agreed to sacrifice one of his daughters for himself. He refused to speak of the castle so that the beast would come for him instead. But he did make sure to give Bonnie the rose. After all, it had cost him his life. Eventually, when Bonnie's most self-centered sisters could see that something was deeply troubling their father, soon the man could no longer withstand being questioned by all of his children at once. I mean, there were like 12 of them. He told his children about his failed business trip and the encounter with the beast. Bonnie's sisters turned on her immediately, because that's how they do, we saw that in Cupid and Psyche as well, and blamed her for all of their father's troubles. Bonnie quite agrees and feels that it is her duty to go and die in her father's place. Her father and brothers were heartbroken, and her sisters pretended to be. So, it was with a heavy heart that Vincent took his youngest daughter to the castle of the beast. When they met, the beast asked Bonnie if she had come willingly, and Bonnie replied that she had, when he sent Vincent home, telling him he was never to return. That night, Bonnie had a strange dream. A beautiful lady appeared before her and told her that she would be rewarded for her goodness and faithfulness. Vincent had left with two more trunks of treasure to replace her help around the house. Frightened of her future, she was left alone with the beast. Bonnie spent her days exploring the beautiful castle where she found her own enchanting apartment, a music room, and a vast library. When she took a book off the shelf to read, it welcomed her in gold lettering and told her that her every wish would be provided for by the house's invisible servants. When she said all that she wished for was to see that her father, and to know how he was doing, a magic mirror showed him arriving home to her sad brothers and gleeful sisters. She was the queen and mistress of all the castle, and all of her desires were met. One night, as she slept, she dreamt of a beautiful flower garden near a bubbling brook, where she happened upon a young man who was so handsome that he looked like a painting of Cupid himself. He told her not to be afraid, that her future would be full of happiness if she would only find him in the castle and set him free. He told her that he loved her, and that her happiness was the only thing that could make him happy. He reiterated that her every wish will be granted within the castle. He knelt before her and asked her to find him and never abandon him. He begged her to break his curse before he vanished. And she met a beautiful woman who told her to be glad that she had left home because a better future would be available for her here so long as she didn't allow herself to be fooled by appearances. Bonnie began to spend her days wandering the castle searching for the young man she spent time with every night in her dreams. She began to find portraits and paintings of the young man, but never their subject. In fact, no other person was seen until the beast joined her for supper every night. She described her day and eventually came to see that while his voice and manner of speech were gruff and rough, he was a very gentle person. Every night after supper, he would ask her to marry him, and every night she politely declined and they parted with no hard feelings between them. Months passed and Bonnie refused the beast requests every day. Every night she grew closer and more in love with the man in her dreams. She even began drugging herself with herbs from the garden to enable herself to sleep more. 
She stopped eating so that her body would need more rest. She neglected herself and her health during the day, living only to sleep. As she grew more and more listless, the beast began to be very concerned for her health. As such, he told her that she should visit her family. Another callback to Cupid and Psyche there. The beast says he knows that she will not return, and losing her will cause him to die of grief, which is something you see in stories from this time, as silly as it sounds now. Bonnie insists that she will return. She has come to feel for him, even if she refused to marry him, and would never leave him to die. He had been her only conversational partner for all of this time, and she couldn't betray him. He gave her a magic ring and allowed her to go, though he was not at all convinced that she would return. When she dreamt that night, the man of her dreams asked her why she would ever want to leave. When she hesitated, he exclaimed, It's that beast, isn't it? And he made to attack the beast with a dagger. When Bonnie stopped him and scolded him for attacking her friend, he accused her of being in love with the beast. She was so deeply furious about the accusation, so angry that her face felt like it was on fire and her hairline tingled with the heat. She told him if she loved the beast so much she could have accepted his proposal at any time, and the unknown man replied that perhaps that would be best. She was about to fire back when she was awakened in her old bedroom. So next episode, we will finish the story of Beauty and the Beast. This episode, like all episodes of the Southern Fried Storytime podcast, is sponsored by Princess Mary. Thank you so much for your support. And if you would like to support the podcast and get a shout out like Princess Mary, just click the support link in the show notes, um, especially through Anchor or Spotify. Thank you for tuning in and have a wonderful day. Bonnie had arrived home with four trunks of treasure to share with her family. Her sisters are not only shocked that she's still alive, but that she is healthy and well off. She tried to share her lovely gowns with them, but they turned to rags as soon as her nasty sisters touched them, and turned back only when they were touched again by Bonnie. The beast had intended these things just for her. Bonnie's happiness chafes at her sisters, who are miserable in their own lives, so they pretend that they missed her desperately in order to get her to stay home longer than she promised the beast. Their hope was that this would enrage her mentally unstable captor and he would kill her, their original plan in the first place. She is so moved by their uncharacteristically affectionate sisters that she does stay an extra three days after the two months that she had promised she'd be away. When the palace guard, sorry, when she had a dream that night, she was in the palace garden and found the beast dying. He had lost nearly half of his weight and was suffering deeply. Her concern for him hit her hard, along with the realization that she had been wrong not to marry him. Her sisters were more unhappy with their husbands than she was with her captor. She had done every, he had done everything for her, and seen to her every happiness. It all seemed so silly and shallow now to refuse to love him. He couldn't help it if he was ugly. Perhaps she did love him after all. She used the magic ring he had given her to magically arrive back at the palace, where she immediately began looking for the beast. Bonnie knew she wasn't romantically attracted to the beast, but he was such a dear friend, and she could not make him miserable. She did love him in his own way, and that he had every quality of a good husband, and she needed to tell him so. She searched every room, calling for him, and then, remembering her dream, she ran to the garden and found him unconscious, but still alive. She poured water over his head, and he woke up. 
He said that he's relieved to see her once more before he died. She told him he cannot die because she wants him to live on as her husband. Her confession gave him a second wind as the castle was surrounded by a magnificent glow and rounds and rounds of fireworks were let off. She turned her attention back to her beast only to find that he had vanished, replaced by the most lovely prince in the world. He thanked her for breaking his curse so that he could be a prince again. She and Prince Kingsley, formerly known as the Beast, entered the castle to find her family, along with the fairy Rose, who had been the lovely woman in Bonnie's dreams. Rose was speaking urgently with an older woman who was also extremely beautiful, though more regal and severe-looking than the fairy. Rose turned to notice the young couple and introduced Bonnie to Queen Regina as Kingsley hugged his mother. Rose was congratulating Bonnie on her throne, saying that it was right for someone so virtuous to rule. Here, Queen Regina had to interfere. She was grateful to Bonnie for breaking her son's curse, but she is still the daughter of a merchant and a commoner. She's an unfit match. At first, Kingsley rebels against his mother. He was willing to renounce his crown to marry Bonnie. Regina sternly reminded him that his uncle had married a commoner who had left him and his baby behind, causing an uprising and the death of his own child. Marrying outside of one's station was absolutely unacceptable. Kingsley continued to argue and beg with his mother, and Bonnie was about to cry when Rose told them that all of this was a non-issue. Rose explained her part in rescuing the princess and trading her secretly with Vincent's deceased child. Bonnie was born of a royal family, their royal family, and was even half-fairy, a worthy spouse indeed. In fact, uh, Rose here is a little bit insulted that Queen Regina thinks that she would allow anyone past her, her magical barrier that would be unworthy of her son. So, you know, she's, she's looked after him all this time, and yet Regina doesn't have faith that she would pick somebody who was worthy. So it's a little... She's a little salty there, and you don't want to make a fairy salty, as probably the secondary moral of this story, really. Queen Regina withdrew her objections, and the two were married. They lived happily to the end of Kingsley's life. Bonnie's fairy bloodline kept her alive so long that eventually, her, when her own descendants saw her, they were no longer sure who she was or how they were related. Through all her centuries, her happiest days were the ones spent with Kingsley, whom she met again after she joined him in death. Beauty and the Beast was written by a governess, and it shows. While Rapunzel was all about marrying for love regardless of social class, Beauty and the Beast is exactly the opposite. The story makes it very clear that the two must be of equal birth, and it almost comes to blows at the end because of it. More than that, as a governess, it was the author's job to get young ladies ready for an arranged marriage, perhaps even to look forward to it. Often these young ladies married much older men, men who would seem, of course, like hairy, rough beasts. They would be terrified of these men and would need to be persuaded that these men had all of the ideal qualities of a good husband and that they could provide a wonderful life. This was an important lesson in order to manage the expectations of the young ladies and encourage them to see beyond physical beauty and physical attraction to what matters, a suitable match and a comfortable life. I think there's something to both of the message of this and Rapunzel. I think for a couple to be successful, there does need to be real love and affection in a relationship. Nobody's a robot, right? 
But I also think that lifelong decisions need to be approached with logic and rational thought. When people are getting married at age 14 or younger, they're going to make emotional choices and not rational ones. In that day, arranged marriages made sense. Parents who have more experience with what matters in life make decisions instead of pubescent hormones. Emotional decisions are rarely very different from drunk decisions and are almost always regrettable. Think about the last time you were very, very angry or passionate. Did you make good choices? Did you say wise things? Passionate choices are usually bad choices, and teens, especially young teens, are very passionate. Arranged marriages seem crazy now, but most people now marry as adults. When they have spent a few years learning to provide for themselves and what moves the gears of life. While love makes everyone a little less rational, adults are supposed to have a little more restraint when it comes to their choices. In other words, I can see the sense in teaching girls not to judge their future spouse by looks alone, but by his virtues and his treatment of her. This advice is very useful. However, so is the advice to marry for love in the Rapunzel tale. I guess my own thoughts fall in between. When in an arranged marriage or any relationship, even if it's with family members, it's always best to love the other person not for what they look like, but for what they are like. But marriage works best when there is love. Remember, love is a choice, as is devotion. A choice beauty made, not for affection, but, or sorry, not for attraction, but for the person under the monster. If you marry based on feelings and attractions instead of thought and devotion, you're going to cycle through spouses like an entertainment industry worker. We all know the success rate of Hollywood marriages, or <laughs> marriages in the mu music industry. You can point to one or two people who hold down a spouse for more than a decade, but overall, they've got like a two-year rotation going on there. And those are the attractive people. So I guess it does show marrying just for physical attraction doesn't lead to a happy, long-lasting marriage. There's also a wrap-up at the end of the story where Beauty's birth parents get back together and when the fairy is pardoned because she takes on a curse on behalf of the daughter of the fairy queen and returns to her husband and daughter. I just couldn't find a place to plug this in without losing the momentum of the story. So when it comes to the parents, Beauty has a set and a half and the prince has half, the queen. And they all spend their happy lives together. So, yeah, I mean, that, that happened. I just couldn't find a spot to cram it in there without upsetting the flow of the story. It's hard to, at the climax of a story, shift from the main characters to focus on a side character's kind of side quest. So I'm not fine. Little Fantasy Nine guys. I don't have a, a separate little video to pull up the side character's actions at any given time. This and all episodes of this podcast are sponsored by Princess Mary through Anchor. Thank you so much for your support. Want a shout out in the show? Click on the support link on Anchor or Spotify. This show really is kind of what I do for fun, and I'm really passionate about it. I really enjoy working on it. It is kind of my, not so much a side hustle as just what I do to kind of calm down, to relax, to enjoy myself. I'm a daydreamer, and uh, this is kind of my healthier, more grown-up outlet for that. I'm not sure how grown up it is to tell fairy tales, but like I said, it's probably healthier than to just sit around daydreaming in my spare time rather than being present in the moment. So as a chronic daydreamer, this podcast is, is definitely my outlet and I appreciate any support. 
from anybody, be it just comments and likes on Facebook or an actual subscription to the show. I definitely enjoy doing this with you guys every single week, and thank you so much for tuning in. It is, of course, my pleasure to talk to you today, and I can't wait to discuss our next story. Have a wonderful day.